You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at InforumSF. Hello, and welcome to tonight's virtual Commonwealth Club of California program. My name is Minda Hartz, founder and author of The Memo, What Women of Color Need to Know to Secure a Seat at the Table, and my latest book, Right Within, How to Heal from Racial Trauma in the Workplace. It is my pleasure to introduce my friend, Eve Rodsky, author of her new book, uh, Find Your Unicorn Space, Reclaim Your Creative Life uh, in, too bu- in a Too Busy World. Um, I'm so excited to be in this conversation. Eve reveals what researchers already know. Creativity is not optional. It's essential. Her new book is, insp- is an inspirational guide to setting new personal goals, rediscovering interests, cultivating creativity, and reclaiming vital time called your unicorn space. We'll be discussing a lot in the next hour, and I want to ask Eve your questions. If you're watching along with us, please put your questions in the text chat on YouTube, and we'll be getting to them later in the program. Eve, welcome. Let me start off by passing it over to you. Hi, Minda. So good to see you. Likewise. I just wanted to say thank you to the Commonwealth Club. I got to do one of my first, very first book talks uh, in person there. Um, And it was just such a welcoming family. The membership is so curious um, and really, really um, smart. So I'm sure we'll get hopefully some good questions. And thank you for watching. Awesome. And I hope everybody has their copy. Um, I love it. I love it. Anytime someone asks me, Eve, what I'm reading, I'd say, this is what I'm reading. Okay. <laughs> That's what I'm reading. So let's get into it. What what exactly is a unicorn space? And how did you come up with the idea to write a book about it? Well, I think two things. First, I'll answer the more straightforward question, what a unicorn space is. Uh, it's a space for active pursuits that make us come alive, Minda. And for too long in sort of this capitalist patriarchal society, we've been taught that rest, uh, focusing on ourselves, doing things just for fun, being creative are things that um, children do or they're dismissed. And what the research shows is that creativity is really associated with daily flourishing. In a time where Adam Grant told us that the most common word of 2021 was languishing. This book is really trying to find the antidote to that. I think that's the easier question. The harder question is why I chose to write it. I'll just give you the minute long version of that. But it really started with children, Minda, for me. It was the erasure I felt uh, after Zach was born. From the second he was given to me in the hospital, Minda, I lost my name. It was, hi, mom. How are you feeling, mom? Uh, Willingly, I put a mom charm on my neck that my friend had given me that week that I had my first son 13 years ago, all the way to sitting in a preschool class cut to three years later, Minda. And I'm sitting around with, of course, mostly women and a couple of gay fathers because, you know, you don't want to bother bother men. So women are the ones sitting around the preschool class, getting your children acclimated. Um, That's the science. Uh, It may be anecdotally different in your family, but that's what we know. Women shoulder two thirds or more of what it takes to run a home and family. And when I was sitting there in this preschool class, what I remember was the preschool teacher distinctly saying to me, look around, you'll be with these people for 10 years. They're going to be your best friends. They're going to know you better than anyone else knows you. I couldn't hear what you said. (laughs) That was Siri chiming in. Um, And when this preschool teacher said that, I remember thinking, these are going to be the people that know me better than anybody else in the world know me. Uh, my, My name tag said Zach's mother. And I kept thinking, they don't even know my fucking name. Uh, And so that was the beginning of understanding that once you are sold the lie that women can be anything they want to be, Once you decide to take on a caregiving role, whether it's a sandwich generation or become a parent um, or anybody who is in charge of anybody else's caretaking needs or roles, then we start to be erased. 
And I didn't want that anymore uh, for women or any marginalized population. Um, that is, our stories are not are not highlighted or told. Yeah, thank you for your vulnerability um, in talking about that because I'm sure many of those people watching us or listening to listening in will also have felt that erasure, right? And when you were talking about Zach's mom, I was like, oh, that's. <laughs> I'm like, what happened to people still being who they are, right? And and you you touched on it a little bit, but I'd love to dig in just a little bit more here, Eve, is what does it mean to be more than your roles? So yes, you are a mom, right? You sit at various intersections, but there's there's so much more. Well, I think the interesting thing, Minda, is, you know, when you talk to women and maybe not, you know, all women will relate to me, but I know I certainly relate to all women because at some point in our lives, all women on this planet will have been defined by their roles um, in some way. And um, what happens in that situation when you start losing your identity in um, your functional in your functional roles is that you actually lose your agency and your decision making power. So I'll just give you a very practical example. A couple of days ago, apparently free COVID tests were available from the Biden administration. I got six, six different text chains at telling, reminding me to order these COVID tests. I asked Seth at the end of the day, how many text chains did you receive asking you to order these free COVID tests? He didn't even know what I was talking about. Um, and then I started to text everybody back in these chains. They were all carpool chains and a political chain of women that consider themselves, you know, very woke feminists. But um, I kept saying, are men getting these chains? Um, did you make a decision about how to use your hour or did the hour get decided for you because this this text came in and you're expected to be the one to order those COVID tests? How is your day pre-planned for you because of the school day? Do you have to log off work at three or get a more flexible job because of institutions like our schools or because your partner expects you to do more unpaid labor? Are your decisions made for you? Because when your parents age, you're going to be the one taking care of them. Often what it means to be our roles and just defined by them is that our decisions are made by people other than ourselves. Mm. You hit on so many things and it made, as you were talking about the COVID tests, I too, I had like probably 10 people send me those. And now I'm thinking when I get off this um, event with you, I'm going to ask my brothers, how many, how many of you did? Ask him. <laughs> ask, I love your brother. Um, I, he's, he's been with us uh, on, uh, on talks. Please ask him how many times he received that. And you can chime in. If you're with us on YouTube, chime in. Um, how many times did you receive that link? Um, and we'll see if there's a, a gender discrepancy. Definitely. Well, you know, some people Eve might be thinking, well, is this unicorn space? Is it a hobby? Is it different than a hobby? Let, let's, how is the unicorn space different than a hobby? Let's dismantle that, that myth for those who might be thinking that. Well, it, it actually, um, it came from one word out of my research, why I thought hobby is a word that needs to be burned, Minda. And that is um, when I asked people to, I had a questionnaire of words that were associated with hobby. And one of the top ones that came up in the word cloud was infrequent. So when people think about hobbies, they think, okay, I'll, I'll do a pickup game of basketball when I can. Um, I'll strum on my guitar that's sitting in my corner um, when I can. This is a completely different idea of creativity. What this is, is this is a space. It's about taking up space, protecting space, where you can create, ideate, tinker, um, all the things that have often been a very um, privileged thing, um, where people can ideate, um, and our attention for other populations have been taken away from us, um, as we said earlier, about the the weight, the, the heft of having to be um, everything to everybody else. And so, Unicorn space was an interesting way to, for me to reframe creativity because it actually started with the idea of taking up space. I really wanted people to take up space um, and to understand you can be loud and wrong. You can be curious. You can do things just for you. You can actually take off two hours on a Sunday, which was extremely subversive when I first started writing Fair Play, to research and write about the gender division of labor 
when there was no book deal, nobody was interested in my book about chores in 2011 when I started this, this pursuit. But it was, I knew it was more than a hobby. I knew that it was taking up space for myself. So then I started to ask people about white space. What white space do they give themselves um, to just think? And actually, um, a lot of my friends of color didn't like the word white space because to them, it felt like, or at least in my data, what they, what they were saying and was that a white space sounds like a place I can't be. And so that I decided I didn't like that word white space anymore. And people still use it, but I, I just find it now triggering. Um, and so the idea of a unicorn space was a space that was mythical and magical, but doesn't exist. It actually doesn't, you, I mean, my daughter would, would take umbrage with that, but unicorns don't exist. And so this idea that we have to make it and claim it um, and imagine it was something that made me feel like I want to live in a unicorn space or a unicorn spaces. Yeah, I love that distinction. And as you were talking, I was also thinking about how often people used to say the work that I do was a passion, passion work. You know, it's like, uh, no, this is equity work, right? <laughs> yeah, this is really important work, exactly. But that's why also the when the passion, when we start to say passion project, again, the words that were being uh, associated with the idea of a passion project were nice to have. It was associated with the feminine, as you said. It's a, it's a, it sort of has this pejorative. Oh, good good luck to you with your passion project. So in the same way that I wanted to burn the word hobby, I wanted to burn the word passion because it also connotes that it's static, that you have to find it, that somehow it's lost, that it's missing, that it was somehow there. But a lot of us, I think, we change, we evolve. That's what we're asking people to do, to grow, to heal. Your work is really, really important for all of us, um, especially right within reading that, this idea of what does healing mean? Uh, your own healing. Thank you for being so vulnerable in your books. And so a unicorn space is taking up space with all of that in it. And that's why I think, again, passion can be somewhat limiting. This idea of really what this book became was an understanding that people who are living self-actualized creativity, and I would consider you one of them, who has multiple unicorn spaces, I will argue your love of sneakers may be one of them. Um, but it, it's this, this idea of a cycle, a practice of three things. And that was, I saw over and over again, a, some sort of curiosity coupled with a connection, a sharing with the world component, co coupled with a completion that somehow it got out there in the world, right? That you didn't live in a graveyard of unfulfilled dreams. And that cycle, when you repeat it, you know, just rinse, wash, repeat, whatever that cycle is, it's, it leads to very, very, very uh, fulfilling experiences that, that sh shelter us, Minda, from uh, the more mundane and the harder times of life. Yes, I agree with that. I, I definitely think that we should we should definitely throw away and cancel hobby and passion. <laughs> and if you have other words we need to cancel too, go ahead and put those in the chat. But make sure that you put your questions in for Eve because we will be getting to a time where you get to ask your questions. Now I know, you know, we talked about roles and you know, so maybe some might be thinking having a unicorn space seems like a lot of work for, for women who are already drowning in work, right? How will this help them not feel so overwhelmed? Well, I think it's such a great question. Um, I really believe that this is an act of resistance. The idea of uninterrupted attention for something you love for women um, is uh, still very subversive in the society. Because Minda, what the I had to honor the data. And so while I was very excited about the creativity framework of curiosity and connection and completion, especially because I love alliterations, um, what kept coming up was I can't really write a book about creativity the same way maybe some pale and male um, counterparts can because I'm seeing in my data real hurdles to even getting to the curiosity and real hurdles to completion. And those real hurdles kept coming up over and over again in my interviews. And now at 750 unique interviews for this book, 
um, but many more anecdotal in our CRM database. We have thousands of anecdotal uh, sharing. What we saw was that there were three things really holding people back. And it wasn't just women, um, but it was people identified mostly as it was the people who were the, the populations of women, people who identified with women, femmes, two spirit people. Um, we, we, especially this, our, our population, we are feeling there's a lack of permission to be unavailable from those roles. That this idea that I could break out of the, um, unavailability. I'm just looking at this one. I like to write down quotes. This one woman said to me it, just recently, well, if I'm not available to everybody else, I wouldn't even know who I am. Availability, especially for women, becomes part of our actual core identity, learned identity. Um, so unlearning that is really hard. The second big hurdle were people saying to me, Yes, I believe I have a permission to be unavailable for my roles, but when I actually sit down to use that permission, Minda, I feel clouds of guilt and shame just washing over me. Um, I know early in my unicorn space journey to fair play, writing fair play, I would block out three to four, you know, research, read the second shift. I read every single article on the gender division of labor uh, since, you know, the early 1900s. And my heart would pound and I would say, this is stupid. I should just might as well go pick up Ben. Um, you know, he's just going to sit in daycare for an hour. I might as well go pick up Ben. Like, what would I, what am I even doing with this time? So I wouldn't honor my time block in my calendar for my un unavailability. And then the third big hurdle that kept being, kept coming up over and over again, and why there's two chapters in a book about creativity on communication is this idea that I don't know how to ask for what I need. And especially this came up for women who are not partnered because this idea that I could set a boundary around my work with my boss, with people who need me, actually was also very subversive. So it didn't always have to be just family obligations. It was that women were feeling unavailable everywhere and everything they did. Yeah, I love that. And again, if you haven't picked up Find Your Unicorn Space, make sure that you do. One of the things I love about, many things I love about this book, Eve, though, is that you don't just say, hey, girl, get your unicorn space. You actually walk us through a process on, on how to create that. So could you walk us through the process of creating a unicorn space? Well, it's such a great uh, thank you. And that's such a good, fun question, because um, there was actually two the two C's that were the most triggering, and then we'll talk about the middle one that's very fun and interesting. But the curiosity was really triggering, Minda, for a lot of people, because it was this idea that, what do you talk, fun, unicorn space, right? That, like, I'll add that to the end of my never-ending to-do list. I wouldn't even know um, what I'm interested in anymore. Um, one woman said to me, I'm an object at rest. It's physics, Eve. Objects in rest stay at rest objects in motion, stay in motion, um, that I'm an object at rest. So that was really hard. And then the other thing that was interesting were people who were knew what they wanted to do, but were afraid to do it, Minda, because of excellence, of completion. They didn't believe me that completion could just mean uploading a podcast uh, from Zencaster. They felt that if they were going to start a podcast, they had to win a Webby Award for it. They had to get a million downloads and subscriptions, all five stars, get the best guests. So this idea of just starting was also very um, hard for, for people who are used to having to be excellent um, and, and not allowed to hear the messages that we're, we can be loud and wrong uh, in many contexts. So I would say, let's talk to the people who say, I don't even know what it would, would be anymore because I'm just so burnt out from my roles as a parent and or partner and or professional. By professional, I mean anybody who works for pay or in the home. The best thing I could tell you for the people who returned Minda to who they were or to who they wanted to be was coming back to your values. I know that sounds easy. Um, well, I know what my values are, but actually I don't mean deeply held values like family values or whatever, how values have been co-opted. I actually mean 
the values that are driving you and fueling you right now, coming back to those, playing with them, thinking about what your bottom values are now. So for a long time, Minda, a very Jewish value of obligation and duty were that my top values. But then one day I decided I no longer want to be obligated to wipe asses and do dishes anymore. And so I started to replace those obligation and duty with with fairness, justice, community. And then from there, you can do many things with it. For me, obviously, I decided to become curious and ultimately wrote, wrote a book um, about the gender division of labor in the home. But it could have gone in many directions. I could have run for office. I could have sat in a nasty women's political knitting collective, as some of my friends have done. Um, it could have looked very different. And I will ask you, Minda, um, do you believe your values inform your work? And if you could just off the top of your head, if you could give me a couple of your values or some maybe that you had along the way that maybe you have said no to um, at this stage of your life. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I love this concept of kind of redefining our narrative, right? And it's okay to to change our value systems and beliefs, like giving ourselves permission to do that. Um, but I'd say for me and my work is definitely similar to yours is justice, right? Equity. Um, I can be the only black woman in the room, Eve, but do I feel like I belong, right? Do I feel like I have a voice? Belonging. That's another value. Um, one that I've changed over time, I think to you, like we think about values, we think family, right? And so I had this really hard how do I say it? Uh, hard was always say yes if family member asked you something, right? And and I realized that actually I can create space. I can create new values to where I can say what I mean without saying it mean, right? So no, I can't do this right now. Um, but, you know, it doesn't mean that I'm a bad person. And I think sometimes when we do change our values, then the shame, the guilt, you know, that we hold on to with that. Yeah, I think... Um... Again, especially people who have been taught we have to be available to everybody, I would say, you know, the values of duty, obligation, um, they may be showing up too 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 strongly for, for a lot of us. And so thinking about the other obligations, I mean, the other values that really are resonating with you, um, and that, that also becomes something that was interesting in the data. I did not see, Minda, as many people returning back to things they did as a kid. That was really some of the only creativity um, uh, advice I was seeing uh, out in the market was this idea of like, go back to what you love to do as a kid. But for me, I had a lot of trauma in my early years and um, I was a parental child. So a lot of what I was doing with my free time was, you know, writing checks so that we wouldn't get evicted and posting notices in my mom's hallway before she went to bed, not to, to remember to call the utilities in the morning. So a return is not always so helpful, I found, and, and the research backed that up for me. So it's more interesting to look at, as you said, the, the notion that we can change, that maybe we do have some deeply held values, but actually examining them for what serves us today and in the near future is actually really, really important. And that's how I would say so many people got curious. They got curious. That's how you start. And as one of my friends said, well, I'm curious about scrolling my friend's Venmo transactions. <laughs> and I said, well, maybe not that type of curiosity, but curiosity <laughs> that aligns with your values, whether it's storytelling or beauty. Um, there's just so much out there that we can grab when we start to become curious. So that's my word. I'd like for us all to replace passion uh, and hobby with uh, finding a curiosity. Uh, I wonder, I wonder what would happen if. That's always a really, really good question to start with. I love that. Well, let's all commit to to checking out the C's, right? And, and seeing what we can do with that. Um, I know we touched a little bit on permission, but something in your book, you talk about the three rules of permission. And I think a lot of times, at least in the work I do, I always say, give yourself permission, right? Because sometimes we don't even, what's holding us back is, can be us just not giving ourselves that space to do that. So we'll start there. What are the three rules of permission? Well, I think I like to look at them as self-talk rules and then how you and what you, how you communicate uh, externally. 
So the first two rules of permission, the rule to um, allow yourself permission to be unavailable and to burn guilt and shame are both permissions that we have to give to ourselves through self-talk. I deserve this permission to be unavailable. I deserve sustained attention for things that I love. I just, as Seth and I, we started with when Fair Play started, it was, wow, I noticed Seth that you have four hours after our kids go to bed to watch SportsCenter, work out, finish a PowerPoint deck. But um, I'm working in service of our home until my head hits the billow, the pillow two hours after you're already asleep. And that doesn't feel fair to me anymore. I deserve as much time choice over how I use my day as you do. I would like equity in our time choice. I'd like to spend time and choose how I spend my time as much as you choose and spend how, how you use your time. That was the beginning of how I was able to articulate it. But Minda didn't just start that way. It took a lot of work, unconditioning, unlearning about how we value women's time in our society. So what these two self-talk rules are, are, are here to listen and, and all of you allies out there, um, it is important to understand how we contextualize and talk about women's time. We guard men's time as if it's finite, like diamonds, and we treat women's time as if it's infinite, like sand. If you don't believe me, just call 50 schools like I did and ask why you call women when kids are sick. You will get lots of, we don't bother men. They won't pick up. Um, women will do it. Uh, it's very disturbing. I will say that, very triggering. But also societal messages, Minda. We know that when women enter a male profession, salaries automatically go down. We know that the care professions that are predominantly women of color, domestic worker professions, are extremely underpaid. We know that we say things to new mothers like breastfeeding is free. When it's 1,800 hours a year, it's a full-time job. And then what happens to our self-talk is we start filling up our lives with unpaid labor because we say things to ourselves like, well, I don't deserve the time to be unavailable. I should be here for my kids. It's my role. Um, we say things like we're better multitaskers. Not true at all, neurologically. We say things like in the time it takes me to tell him or they what to do, I should do it myself. That's highly devaluing our time, all of our future time. We say things like, my partner makes more money than me, so I sh uh, my job should be more flexible or I should be more flexible and available to others. So really these two, the self-talk rule of the shoulds, the guilt and shame, the unavailability is all about reclaiming the fact that women's time is diamonds. We just get 24 hours in a day, just like our male counterparts. And the self-talk is that we deserve equal time choice over how we use those, those hours. I love that, 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 that self-talk, uh, you know, the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves uh, is so important, <laughs> you know, so I, I, I like reframing that. And for those right now, you know, kind of thinking about, mm, I, I just don't have the time to figure this out, right? I don't have the time to do this without feeling guilty. What do you say to those folks? Well, let's, okay. So that was the unavailability. That's really permission. Number one is this reframing of time. Look, I'm still reframing my time and, uh, you know, this unlearning of what culture has taught us about ourselves is highly triggering and it's, it's, it's important and deep work. Again, why your work I think has resonated so much is a lot of it is unlearning um, and then doing something about it. So that that's really important. Um, but the guilt and shame is a really interesting one. So now what I do is I actually, I, I keep a candle burning for when I'm unavailable, it reminds me to burn guilt and shame and keep it out of my, my domain. Um, for me, guilt and shame. Cheers, yes, yes, cheers, cheers, I got my cheers. <laughs> so we sort of, cheers. we're going to just keep burning together, yes. burn and keep our space protected. But guilt and shame is actually a really interesting one for me because um, guilt about not doing my homework, Minda, there's a lot of reasons guilt was probably really helpful to me. And sort of getting out of this sort of difficult uh, single parent household that, you know, was, uh, you know, in an avenue C and 14th street in New York city in the eighties and nineties. 
Um, I wanted something bigger than, than what was happening around me. And so I think guilt really helped me a lot. So what I had to do was when I was going on book tour, this literally happened. Um, I was going to be away for five weeks and everybody around me said, oh my God, you're missing Zach's birthday. Uh, five weeks. You sure you have to be away for that long? A lot of guilt and shaming around me, even after Seth and I had, my husband and I had come up with an equitable division of labor and he was going to hold all those cards for that, that amount of time. I had to take a piece of origami paper that someone had sent my baby daughter, which I found funny, by the way. I'm like, what baby can fold origami, but whatever. <laughs> so I took one of these beautiful marble piece of paper. I took a silver Sharpie. Let's see if I even have one here. You know, one of these metallic pens. And I wrote guilt and shame on this piece of paper, this origami piece of paper. I folded it really, really small into a small square and I set it on fire. And I actually really did talk to guilt and shame and said, you've been helpful to me. I'm sure you've been there for me to push me forward, but I really don't need you anymore. And it's, it's time that I let you go. And so that ritual, the ritualized burning of guilt and shame, combined with Dr. Cheryl Gonzalez-Ziegler, who I interviewed for Unicorn Space, she was, she's been there for me since Fair Play. Her reframe that she's forced me to do is instead of say, I feel guilty because, you just switch out, I made that decision because. And back to our obligation to our family, I feel guilty because I didn't go see my aunt and she was sick and I said I would deliver her food. I made the decision not to go visit my aunt because I'm really, really burnt out and I may collapse and my health is going to be affected. And there'll be two of us sick if I took that extra long drive. Being able to be firm in our decision-making, uh, it gives us the agency to combat guilt and shame when it comes. I feel guilty I didn't put Anna to bed. I made the decision not to put Anna to bed because I wanted to talk to my counterparts in Germany and they could only do something their morning and my night. That's what you do. You just keep that practice going, going, going. And then once you master those two permissions to be unavailable and to burn guilt and shame, then asking for what you need actually comes pretty easily. Because if you can protect your own boundary and articulate it to yourself why you made that decision, then saying to Anna, Thank you for respecting my decision not to put you to bed tonight because I have to speak to this amazing group of German women and I can't wait tomorrow to tell you what I learned from them is a much easier place to come from, Minda, than, oh my God, I feel so guilty and I'll try to put you to bed and we'll see how it goes and you know all the wishy-washy stuff that um, we tend to do and that actually doesn't do us a service at all. Yeah, I, I love that. We we have to say goodbye. We have to burn guilt and shame. They cannot go where we're headed. Not if we're trying to live in our unicorn space, right? They just can't. Yeah. No, they just can't. They do not. They will take up that space. They will ruin the space. They will crunch you into your space and make it you small. And we need this bigger, bigger space to take it up for ourselves. Yes, there's no room for it. We're, we're pushing it out. <laughs> With no room. I love that so much. Um, burning it out. We're burning it out. Yes, we're burning it out. So make sure that you all burn it too. Yeah, join, um, join sure us. You... Yes, do it <laughs> join safely. It. Join do party. it safely. <laughs> yes, be careful. <laughs> be careful. Um, but I want to kind of talk a, a little bit more about um, happiness, right? You know, you 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 talked about you talk about how creativity leads to a happier, more fulfilling life and deeper connections. And, and I think that's so true. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, let's nerd out because I always do this with you, Minda. I get to go deep. <laughs> you you allow me to go deeper. And thank you, Commonwealth Club, for that. Um, so here it was so interesting. I spent a lot of time researching this book in happiness labs. So there's one at UCLA. Um, I sat in on the curriculum of a professor that I love, um, love Professor Lori Santos at Yale, um, she has a happiness lab there. And I even got her to admit, which I love, that if you focus on ha how to be happy, you're going to be more sad. At this point in our lives, we could literally gratitude journal ourselves to death. Um, and not saying that we don't need to burn the gratitude journal, even though I'm sort of saying that. 
but but <laughs> but what 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 really bothered me about the happiness research, Minda, was that it was sort of being co-opted by the right wing. Um, I was starting to watch positive psychology sort of go in a direction that was making me feel uncomfortable. An idea that, well, we don't need a social safety net because actually happiness levels can't really be changed. And so what's the point of, you know, giving beds to homeless people? I mean, literally, that's where it was going. And so it felt dangerous to me where the sort of the happiness um, movement was moving going. And so it felt important to me to anchor happiness somewhere different. The goal is not a how to be happy uh, journey. The goal is a place actually where happiness becomes a clue. When you're doing something and you say to yourself, I feel happy, it's a clue, just like jealousy is a clue, just like rage is a clue. And if we can anchor it more there, it becomes less all-encompassing because actually the definition of mental health is the appropriate emotion at the appropriate time with the ability and the strength to weather it. So I stopped saying to my kids, I want you to be happy. I started saying to them, I want you to have the appropriate time, the appropriate emotion at the appropriate time and the ability and strength to weather it. Anybody who's happy all the time, especially what just happened the past two years, you're probably a sociopath. So I'm not into being happy all the time. What I am into is this idea of the ability and strength to weather it. And so there was this one woman, I love everybody I interviewed for the book and quoted, including you, but I love... Um, I really love this woman, uh, who, Kat Medina, who I interviewed. She was at Sam's Club. And I interviewed her because she was an erotic narrator. And I just thought that was the coolest unicorn space. So she had this job at Sam's Club. She's home reading to her son. Her husband's in the other room. He's an auto mechanic with um, you know erratic hours. And he walks in and says, you know, I actually thought that was a tape, like a book on tape. I didn't know that that was your voice. You... From the other room, you actually sounded like a completely different person, animated and funny and, and reading like all the characters with the exact accents. And he said, you might want to like try trying out for narrating audiobooks. And this is early in the days of audiobooks. Like, I think Audible had just come out and she was like, what are you even talking about? So she got curious. She Googled like how to narrate an audiobook or where would she even put up her audition serendipitously at her Sam's club, there was a microphone on clearance. She borrows her husband's laptop. She records princesses behaving badly. And within one week, she gets an audition. She books her first audiobook. Now, what she tells me is after just reading a couple books, she decides to tattoo on her arm. Reading books is like breathing air. And her mother gets really mad at her and says, like, you need to hold your horses. You've read like one book. Like this is, you know, like, you know, you're not, you've read one book. Why would you already <laughs> tattoo this on your arm? And her point was, because that's an experience no one can ever take away from me. And I started to think about what that means to be at a place where it's not just happiness without meaning, which is binge watching Netflix or, you know, drinking. A lot of us have been, for me, it's emotional eating or meaning without happiness, which is a lot of the caretaking stuff we were talking about earlier. When you're at this intersection of happiness and meaning, it becomes that, that those experiences that, that are how you weather difficult times. And we know that. We know that creativity is linked to daily flourishing, as we said earlier. We know that creativity is actually the choice for people who are in really difficult situations. My friend, my colleague, Mark Bamuthi-Joseph, um, he's at the head of the Kennedy Center, but he's a spoken word artist, said for many communities that are not um, the white Christian male privilege in this country, creative capital has been our only form of capital um, as opposed to financial capital. So we know that there is a lot of important creativity, creativity links to an ability and strength, strength to weather hard times. And that's really what I think we all need right now, Minda. We don't need to go on the fool's voyage to happiness. What we need is to combat the epidemics of loneliness and to combat the, ep the epidemic of burnout.
I love that so much. Uh, and I always love when I hear you tell that story um, about Kat's uh, unicorn space. Uh, we have less than 30 minutes together uh, and we'll move to the audience Q&A in about five minutes, but I'm going to squeeze in if I can get another question in here with Eve. I just love this conversation. If you're loving it too, make sure that you let us know in the chat. Um, can your unicorn space be your work? It's a really good question. And I would say, yes, it could be, but it has to be one of your spaces. So it was actually back to, can it be your work? Let's go. So that was the one side. We spent a lot of time on people who need to refine it or have felt burnt out and not as interested in their own life. And we are here to tell you the antidote to burnout is being interested in your own life. But what about the people who are so interested in their own life that everything becomes almost monetized or they're able to make it their job? What I found with those people, and I will add you, Minda, to this list, is that absolutely, because your work has all three elements of curiosity plus sharing it with the world plus completion. I mean, you wrote lots of books <laughs> and, 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 and your um, LinkedIn series is complete, meaning it may not be perfect, but you edit it. Your brothers love him. It helps you. And then mm -hmm. it gets up into the, into the world, right? You, 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 you do that important completion step. But what happens is there's a happiness trio, which means in my research now from two books, the things that people felt they held on to in times that felt hard, that were key to their mental health, were true self-care, not commodified wellness. You don't need a CBD oil pedicure. Just, you know, walk on the beach or whatever you want to do. True self-care, adult friendships, and unicorn space. The people who've made unicorn space their job, I find, become addicted to it. They can be in a flow state for a really long time. It's great. But you can't forget your friendships and your self-care. And so that's what I would say. Don't forget, you have to add in self-care and friendship time. Yeah, I, I echo that so much because, um, as you know, Eve, I recently moved from one coast to another coast. And I had, when I lived in New York City, I had kind of abandoned my friendships because I was so busy with my work, right? And now being out in Los Angeles, I'm making time for my friendships and I'm reminding myself that Minda, actually you're a fun girl. You, you, <laughs> you know, but I forgot those pieces of myself. And, um, you know, so in reading your book has really reminded me and helped me um, not feel guilty about, okay, yeah, I didn't get this done today, but I'm going to go have brunch with my friends. Absolutely. You absolutely need that time. And um, it is, all three of those things are important. It's why, you know, Unicorn Space is not just a one-off spin class, Minda, because that is self-care. Of course, we need that. We should all um, invest in our, you know, physical health by some version of exercise, even though um, uh, my Apple Watch said I had 552 steps today. So that would not be me. But I, I think it's an understanding that we, the, the, things we could do to really anchor ourselves is to say to ourselves, what are the most important decisions I'm making today? What is the most important thing I will be doing today? And if sometimes that can be your friendships that I will have seen an old friend, if sometimes it could be your unicorn space, if sometimes it could be your self-care, that means you're, you're winning in a, again, in a capitalist patriarchy that wants us to have our ass in a chair working for somebody else for 15 hours a day, uh, making the most, having the most important decisions and actions of your day, being in that happiness trio, again, I believe is an act of resistance. Absolutely. I, I love that so much. Uh, it's to question time, Eve. We have so many questions that have come in from the audience. Thank you for your questions. Keep them coming. We'll try to get to as many as possible, but th this one I think will, will be a great way to kick this off, but Eve, what is your unicorn space? Someone wants to know. <laughs> well, let's see if I have, I'm like, where's my costume? I was just doing it on, oh yeah, here we go. Um, I love to dance. Um, I used to want to be a Nick City dancer. So this is my, this was the costume that was sent to me in the mail by my advanced beginner jazz hands class. Love doing it. a little, little Bob Fosse there. So yes, I would say um, dance for sure. Um, and 
of course, you know, the gender division of labor is my unicorn space. My activism is my unicorn space. It allows me the most amazing connections. I got to meet Minda. I mean, the amount of new friends I have um, who are also on a similar path has made me feel so not alone. So again, Minda, I really respect you and thank you for showing up for me in so many different ways. Um, and I'd say my new unicorn space, because again, the creativity is iterative and you never know where it'll take you, is I become obsessed with writing a murder mystery. I, my self-care is reading murder mysteries. I love Agatha Christie. I love Louise Penny. I love all the, the thrillers, but mostly it's women who are dying. Um, and so I don't love the fetish, fetishizing of women um, being murdered. And so I think there's other ways to do murder mysteries. So I've been outlining one just for fun, literally just for fun. My completion may be that I just tell Minda about it over our, our, our friendships. So we don't burn out from our work. And that, may, and that may be my completion. I'm not sure publishing, I need to publish it to be complete for me. Uh, I love that. So yeah, whenever you want me to come over and you want, you know, to, I, I'll sit there and I will, I, I'll let you tell me all the stories. So I love, I love that for you. And, you know, I appreciate you too and, re and respect you and thank you for always amplifying my work and being such a great ally and friend. I truly appreciate you. Uh, we have some really great questions coming in. Um, let's see. There's so many good ones. Eve, what do conversations about unicorn space look like with your partner? That's a great question. This uh, was the most triggering piece of research that came out of my data. And I will now say, I could uh, safely say I probably have the largest longitudinal study of unpaid labor in the world because I've spoken now over 10 years in seven to 17 countries of women and growing. And what so what has been so interesting um, in that research was uh, we took a thousand people just randomly. This was actually not mirroring the U.S. Census the way that we do it rigorously when we report back as my research. This was just for fun. But on social media, we asked a thousand people, what is your most important practice? And some people said, of course, you know, I need more information. What do you mean by practice? I ignored that. Just to answer the question. Um, I like to ask vague questions because I was hoping that in the thousand, not one of them would say communication. And the good news is not one person said communication. I'm here to tell you communication is your most important practice. It's more important than exercise. It'll be the most important practice of your life. As we said, it's the key to asking for what you need is the key to unicorn space and living a creative self-actualized life. But so many of us, uh, the saddest part of my data, I don't know if it's saddest even a word, the most sad part of my data was to recognize that in so many partnerships, Minda, the person that's supposed to love you the most resents you the most. And they resent you for being who you want to be. And it doesn't start out that way, but especially after caregiving roles, if things get unbalanced and one person is claiming more leisure time than the other person, we're in this very bizarre scorekeeping tit for tat where people are rolling their eyes if someone signs up for a marathon or um, taking a dance class or saying, great, you get to have spa days, I have to be with the kids. It becomes this sort of bitter, bitchy way. And I don't mean bitchy just that women are doing it. We're all sort of bitchy and scorekeeping and angry at our partner for when they want to take time for their friends, for their self-care and for their unicorn space. So we have to break that cycle. We have to break that cycle because it, it behooves nobody to be in a partnership where the two most uh, common words that were associated with this time, this day and age and, and caregiving in a partnership was overwhelmed and bored. And so I could go to Seth and say, hey, do you want to just keep living overwhelmed and bored together? Um, or do we want to be the people we fell in love with and actually bring our interesting selves into this relationship? We have to, and, and by the way, the one, number one thing we have to do to retire that is this bizarre narrative that's come up about intensive togetherness. My son just showed me on TikTok, this woman who was crying because her husband went to Target without her. Go to Target without your partner. You do not have to do everything together. Um, please, I don't know where please that, go I, to Target. Please. 
I don't know where that came from, but it is so strange to me when couples report to me that they are doing everything together. They go to the playground together with their kids. They go to Costco together. It's mind numbing and it's, it's highly, highly inefficient as well. Agreed. I, I love that. Yes. Go, go alone. Sometimes um, we have another great question here. Um, uh, COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated the inequality in unpaid labor, including, but not limited to house care and dependent care. What does unicorn space look like in a pandemic and how is it, how is it, sorry, and how is it made more important? Why is it more important in these times? Sorry, it was kind of long. So it was, <laughs> that's a great question. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, that's why I keep this here to remind myself that we've just had a 153% increase in unpaid labor for women. Um, we are facing a huge societal reckoning right now um, of the fa fact that, you know, our foundation of America is is rotted. It's collapsing. Um, you know, the systemic inequities that you meant to talk about um, are, are, are contributing to the rot. Um, this, this assumption uh, of white feminism is contributing to the, to the rot. There, there was this time of Gen X growing up where, um, and this, again, this mirrored my data where, Men in partner, you know, in heterosexual partnerships were saying to me, well, if my wife is so overwhelmed, she should just get help. Women were then internalizing that narrative and saying, well, for me to rise, I don't need to invite my, my husband or the man, man I'm married to in a heterosexual partnership into their full power in the home. I just have to outsource to women of color. And so then it became, well, white women can rise in their career if I underpay women of color for my domestic labor. And this vicious cycle is, is at the core of why Build Back Better is not going to pass, in my opinion. It's why we don't have universal childcare in this country. It's why we don't even have basic paid leave, because we are extremely conflicted about women's roles in this country. And we fundamentally believe that they should uh, martyr themselves um, to to be available to others. So that's why the permission to be unavailable from your roles, I believe, is subversive enough. If you are burned out and do not have time to participate in the activism, we are here doing it for you and you can come along with us at any point. But until then, the permission to be interested in your own life is your own active resistance. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, we have another question here. I, I love this one too, is how do we foster creativity in children? Do you think the unicorn space is just as important for our youth as it is for adults? My God, thank you. What a beautiful question. Um, yes, yes. In fact, we just did something with Rebel Girls where we have powerful pairs um, and I got to write the guide for mothers, the guide for mothers in the back. Um, and it says discover your unicorn space. But what, what it's basically saying is that um, we need to role model for children what it looks like to have appropriate emotions at appropriate times and the ability of strength and the strength to weather them. And so that's why this unicorn space idea of having that armor, like Kat Medina had that tattoo, these experiences, the umbrellas and hard times, I think is a better way to talk to kids as opposed to saying, I just want you to be happy. Because I, what does that even mean? Again, and especially when things are really hard or they're seeing a friend suffer or a colleague suffer, I'm not sure I'd want to be happy um, in many stories that, that came up for you and right within. I would want to be outraged or angry. How can you be an upstander if happiness is all you hear? I want you to be happy. So instead, I think teaching children that you wish for them the appropriate emotion at the appropriate time and the ability of strength to weather it and ask, start asking them, well, what helps you weather hard times? Is it your friendships? Is it your basketball? Is it your music? Um, is it your ax throwing? As one of my friends started taking up this one man, David, uh, I heard from him on NPR in Texas, Minda. He said that he's returning to bull riding in his sixties. That sounds a little dangerous to me, but I, we, I see you, David, and I appreciate you. Um, and so those returns to to, to those things that we loved. Or as I said, if you don't have them, like the same way I didn't, 
uh, understanding your values and what things you could be curious about moving forward. That's your shield. And that is to me, the most important thing. Also understanding completion does not have to be perfection for kids is a really big deal. So many kids that I spoke to teenagers for this book in family structures told me that they quit their unicorn space because they weren't as good as X, Y, and Z. Their friend is going to be a professional baseball player. So what was the point I'm playing on the B team? These are the things I'm hearing that are making, breaking my heart. We've even taken away, we've already replaced play for kids, Minda, with the, we've taken that P away play and we've replaced it with professional. Um, everything is a way to make money, to commoditize our lives. And again, I think that's a, a product of late stage capitalism. And so understanding that and breaking that cycle for our kids is going to be really important in their, in their growth. Yeah. Yeah, that's really, I, I love that question. I love the answer. I, I love also the concept of going back to some things. One thing I, I did, Eve, I went to Target recently. <laughs> Funny that you bring it up. And and uh, I used to really love board games. And it's something that I just haven't had, I hadn't made time to do, right? In, in years, decades, probably even. And I went to like the toy section, game section, and I bought all the games I used to love, right? You know, even Operation. And- <laughs> I love like, operation. Yes. <laughs> so I bought all of these, you know, I love Scrabble and I, and I'm part of that cre creativity for me is going back to some of those things that I really loved and, and putting them back into my life. So, you know, thank you for reminding us. To and do you could do that with your friends. Let's do it, Minda. Yeah. You know, when Omicron just plummets, hopefully soon, let's just do like a, a let's go to lunch and let's bring, Scrabble, and we'll just play for 30 minutes, see how far we get. You will definitely beat me. Um, I'm a terrible speller, uh, and I I like to speak in short words and curses. So you'll win, but I still I love We'll have fun. We'll, we'll have our own rules to, to Scrabble. Okay. So, I love that. Uh, so we just have a little bit of time left, but I, I'm going to squeeze in another question here. There's so many great questions. Let's see. Eve, what do you say to someone who thinks they, I know we kind of talked about it a little, but maybe you could expound on it more for people who say they don't have time to be creative. Well, I think um, there's a few things. One, again, the number one thing that allowed me to bring unicorn space back in my life. Um, I love Lori Santos, uh, that professor in the happiness lab. She has this great quote that says, really, the best thing you can do for your health is make your leisure time nutritious. And so breaking up with my phone was a really important uh, thing for me to do to write. Understanding that my weapon is attention and things that took my attention away were really um, not serving me as well. And so this idea of being able to take down the amount of time I was spending on social media or things that were not nutritious leisure time, whether it be a binge watching television um, doom scrolling Twitter, um, you know, those, once you realize how much time we are spending on things that have happiness without meaning, hedonic well-being, even the return, the five, 10 minute return, or even the once a week return to, as we said, asking ourselves, what's the most important thing I will do today and committing to make it outside of your roles, um, that will center you into some of this more nutritious leisure time. But what I would say is just start whatever it is, five minutes a day. If you're curious about Scrabble, um, maybe just buy Scrabble. Maybe you'll end up creating Wordle like that, that, that man <laughs> yeah. did for his girlfriend. You have no idea where your curiosity will take you. Um, so that's what I would say. I would say start small, 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 small bites. Um, of curiosities can lead to a nutritious meal. Nice. Great, great, great mic drop on that. Um, so last question from me. Uh, it is a tradition to ask our speakers the following question. What is your 60 second idea to change the world? That's such a good one. So my 60 second idea to change the world is I fundamentally believe that unpaid labor needs to be in the United States gross domestic product. 
And we've been having a lot of conversations about different measures of happiness, productivity, um, because GDP is extremely limiting. However, while we still use that extremely lim limiting marker of growth in our country, uh, we unpaid labor has to be in there. And it's actually really pretty easy to do since we have great time use data, we can do it. It's just about the will to recognize that all the things we do, cooking meals, raising children, going to Target, uh, all the things that we do for the people around us, um, helping people die are not only our humanity, but they are actual productive labor that people would have to do for money if uh, women didn't do them for free. Yes, and, and that will change the world, Eve. So thank you for that. Our thanks to Eve Rodsky, author of Find Your Unicorn Space, Reclaim Your Creative Life in a Too Busy World. We encourage you to pick up your copy of Eve's new book at your local bookstore. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club efforts in making virtual programming possible, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash forward slash online. I'm Minda Hartz. Thank you and take care. You've been listening to a podcast of Inform, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at informsf.org.